Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Calling Tau City. Turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in your transmissions. I'm hooning, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. I'm pointing them to the moon. This is the Starship Sofa, everybody. Welcome. Hello and welcome to show 477. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is, 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 is <laughs> fine and dandy. Well, this week, and for three more as well, this is something new as well, we are doing a translation special month. Yes, month being three weeks, obviously. Do you know what I mean? We're in the UK, and that's that's how we roll over here. Yes, on the back of the Kickstarter, the success of the Kickstarter, Jeremy's pulled out all the stops, and it's a great little kind of roll-on from the Kickstarter. We're going to do like a three-week special on translation stories. So we're starting this week as well with Lost and Found by Maria Haskins. Yes, so if you subscribe to the email, I put it out last night or Facebook and anywhere like that. So I'm really quite pleased with Jeremy, you know what I mean? Kind of, it, it is difficult as well. And I pulled, I pulled Jeremy up. I says, Jeremy, what? You know, we're doing a translation month special. I says, what? Well, I've only got three weeks. And he says... And he, I'll, that's what I admire Jeremy, you know what I mean? He's kind of putting his little heart on the line there and said... The, they weren't good enough. You know, the ones he kind of getting in and, you know, he'd ask for, he says, those three are the best. And I'm not going to compromise and just put out a little one, you know. So I thought, hey, you know what I mean? Let Jeremy, you know, go on, Jeremy. He doesn't, if he doesn't like it, he doesn't play it. So that's fantastic. So, yes. So this is what's coming to the show. First up is the kind of this first story, Lost and Found by Maria Haskins. Then we have an interview. I did an interview with Alex Schwarzman, who has is running actually a, a Kickstarter campaign now. And Alex has been instrumental, really, in 
advice for me for you know when we kind of started paying the writers and just getting contracts do you know what i mean just getting bogged down in all that do you know what i mean alex is an, an editor a writer as well and he's just been such a great help with putting all that together and he's running a, a kickstart as well so I, I wanted to kind of just ask a few questions you know especially about his project his fund as well but just like you know the the workings of Kickstarter as well. So that's coming at the end of the day show. So I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So kicking off week one of this translation special month, this story was written in Swedish and has been translated into English. And like I say, it's lost and found by Maria Haskins. Maria Haskins is a Swedish-Canadian writer and translator. She writes speculative fiction and poetry and debuted as a writer in Sweden in the far-off era known as the 1980s. Oh, Maria, there. That was there, jiving away. Since 1992, she's lived in... Canada and currently located just outside Vancouver with her husband, two kids and a very large black dog. Her English language fiction has appeared in or will be appearing in Fast Fiction Online, Gamut, R.B. Wood's Word Count podcast and several anthologies including Tales from the Alternative Earths, England Press, People Are Strange, Mind Eye series and Waiting for the Machines to Fall Asleep. You can find her on Twitter at Maria Haskins. This story is narrated by Andrea Richardson. Andrea Richardson is a British singer and actress with extensive stage and film performances to her name. She began narration and voiceover work in 2014, but enjoys using her existing skills in a different way. You can find Andrea at, and there's a link there to Andrea's site as well. So Andrea, what a lovely voice. This is just fantastic. Thank you so much. Hopefully we'll get you back on as well. So... The Starship Sova is very proud to present Lost and Found by Maria Haskins. She was standing by the window, gazing out at the disappearing frost while sipping the last of the soup from the thermo jar. The pain in her left foot was always worse just after waking, and she was leaning on the wall to take the weight off until the pills kicked in. She liked looking at the frost in the mornings. The ground was covered with a thick layer of sprawling ice crystals. She liked looking at the frost in the mornings. The ground was covered with a thick layer of sprawling ice crystals, and the windows were coated with swirls and intricate patterns, shimmering like glass prisms in the first sunlight. Soon it would all melt away, and trickle down the capsule's metal hull to be absorbed by the sand. Only in the deeper, shaded valleys would the frost remain until afternoon, the sand there hard and frozen, shattering beneath the soles of her boots. How long now? she wondered, instinctively checking her watch. It was flashing the same useless numbers over and over again. The same numbers the computer gave her, as if time had stood still since the crash. How long? But trying to remember was pointless. She had lost track of the days and the nights sometime after the first two weeks. When she awoke, she never knew how long she'd been asleep, if it was days or just a couple of hours. Sometimes she would wake at the first light of dawn, but more often she woke up much earlier, laying there in the dark, waiting. In the darkness, sleep and wakefulness blended together, with the wind ever present. Its high, lamenting, pitiless tone was always there, 
penetrating even the thick walls of the capsule, piercing every dream and thought. Maybe one of the others had a watch that still worked. The thought took her by surprise, and made her throw the empty thermo jar against the wall in sudden frustration. Stupid, stupid, stupid! Why hadn't she thought of that before? I could go and get it, she mused, looking out of the window at the steep rise, its shadow creeping slowly across the ground as the sun rose higher in the sky. It wasn't far. It would just take a couple of minutes to climb up the rocky bank, shuffle down the slope on the other side, and then she would be there, with them. She felt the food turn inside her, the vomit burning in her throat. No. She should have thought of that before she moved them. It was too late now. She couldn't go back. She couldn't face them again. Two had died in the crash. The third had managed to stay alive the first night, but she hadn't been able to help him. When he too was dead, she had hauled out the bodies one by one, dragging them up the hill, and then rolling them down into the hollow on the other side, out of sight. They had been much heavier than she'd expected, so difficult to move, their cold skin resembling some kind of syntho material when she touched them, their eyes still wide open, their mouths ajar as if they were about to speak. What would you say? she had wondered as she watched them. But she knew it no longer mattered. When the last one had been placed in the hollow, she'd stretched out onto the cold ground next to them to get some rest. She'd stayed there for a long time before recovering enough strength to go back. It had been so quiet, protected from the sand and the wind, and it would have been so easy to stay with them. But night had fallen, and the cold had come with it, so in the end she'd crawled back up the sandy incline. She'd left her gloves behind, and her hands had been so stiff, numb fingers searching for something to hold on to, scratching and scraping. How long ago now? She studied the palms of her hands. On the crest of the ridge she'd fallen, slamming her hand hard into rock and sand and gravel. The cuts had healed by now. How long did it take a wound to heal? A week? Two weeks? Three? But it must have been longer than that. Months, probably. The frost was melting, glistening drops running down the window. She followed one of them with the tip of her finger, saw it join other droplets, becoming larger, heavier, until it fell out of sight into the dry sand, falling. The screech of the emergency signal stabbed her eardrums. She'd always assumed that people would scream in situations like that, but nobody had screamed. The only voice had been the computer's voice, calmly repeating that the rescue capsule's emergency landing system had been activated, and then there had been the noise of the bodies slamming into each other. The guidance system was defective, she thought, nodding to herself and wetting her chapped lips with the tip of her tongue. She went over what had happened before, during, and after the crash, quite often in her mind, memorising the details, recapitulating the sequence of events, making sure that she remembered everything. Her report had to be complete and accurate when the rescue team arrived. She tried to document it all, had even attempted to make a voice record of it. It had been like reading a fairy tale to herself at bedtime, but when she reviewed it the next morning she couldn't stand listening to it and erased the file. They had to know about the crash by now. The emergency signal must have reached the beacons. It wouldn't be long before someone came to get her. There was so much to do until then. She'd put most of the intact scientific equipment to use, setting up atmospheric and seismic testing stations in three different locations. 
the wireless relays were not working, and the stations were not situated as far apart as they ought to be, but all the stats that she had gathered so far looked promising. She was already preparing several terraforming proposals, as well as a preliminary resource plan, suggesting which transformation methods would be the most suitable. In ten years, this planet would be ready for limited colonization, and maybe then she could return here, apply for a settlement permit, get a place of her own. Ten years of service gave you top priority in the colonies, so they couldn't deny her that. Her breath was fogging up the window, and she wiped off the mist with her sleeve. A few drops on the outside of the glass were all that was left of the frost now, but tomorrow morning it would be back again. It always came back. Today she would take readings from the stations she'd set up by the cliffs. She was always hesitant about going outside, and especially to that location because it was so far away from the capsule. But by now the pills she had taken had numbed the pain. Her foot hardly hurt at all when she pulled on the thermal suit and put on her boots, tightening the straps of the left boot to give her ankle enough support for the walk. The inner airlock opened with a sharp hiss, then closed behind her before the outer hatch opened. Dust and grains of sand drifted in, sparkling in the sunlight, and she snapped the UV shield down over her eyes so as not to be blinded. When she stepped over the threshold, the wind immediately grabbed hold of her, pulling at her hair and clothes as she walked around the capsule to perform the mandatory daily check of its exterior. The wind didn't seem to have changed direction at all since they arrived. And the dunes surrounding the vessel built up higher every day. They almost cover the windows by now. Soon she would have to remove some of the sand, or the capsule would end up completely buried. Halfway round, she suddenly stumbled, causing her left ankle to bend awkwardly underneath her. She banged the hull hard with her fist so that her knuckles ached, sucking on the pain through clenched teeth. They were back. The tracks were back. They looked the same as before. They trailed across the sand in exactly the same direction. She already knew that trying to follow them was futile. A short distance from the capsule, the ground turned stony for a stretch, and after that, they didn't reappear. Crouching down, she studied the tracks. There were more of them this time, crisscrossing each other, coming and going, leaving and returning, ripples and marks in the sand. Nothing strange about that. Wind patterns. Yes, the wind made them, and now the wind was erasing them, and in just a few hours, they would be obliterated. She squinted past the capsule towards the crest of the ridge, but there was nothing to see there. Nobody could see her any more. Turning round, she stood up and kicked sand over the tracks, trampling them until the only marks were the ones made by her own boots. Afterwards, she stood there, a little out of breath, rubbing her still aching knuckles. The wind was pushing her very hard. It was inside her hood, wailing in her ears, groping at her neck with cold fingers. The shadow of the ridge was shrinking already. As the sun moved higher, later in the day the shadow would fall on the other side where they were, in the hollow where not even the wind could get to you, where all the sounds were so muted and so distant that it almost seemed like silence. But she couldn't go back there. Adjusting the UV shield, she turned around and began walking away from the capsule, taking long, confident strides. With every step, she put her left foot down hard on the ground to test it. It barely hurt at all. As she walked, she tried not to think of how far she had to go, and rattled off snippets of data in a loud voice to occupy her mind. Atmospheric oxygen levels, rotation times of other planets they had visited, details of planetary orbits, periodic table—anything would do. It wasn't like it mattered what she said. 
the wind ripped the words out of her mouth and scattered them, leaving nothing but sand on her tongue. Still she kept on talking, putting her head down, leaning into the gusts and striding onwards. Even though the wind-rippled ground seemed level and unchanging, she was soon unable to see the capsule when she turned around. Out here the wind was all there was. It never left her alone, screamed in her ears, whipped the sand against her face, and it blew in under the UV shield, stinging her eyes. She tried to think of something else, something from before, something from back home. But she no longer had any such memories. They'd been swept away by the wind, leaving only the high-pitched wail, the sand, and the shadows. Finally, the cliffs were there in front of her, their sand-blasted silhouettes rising like twisted, crumbling towers out of the otherwise featureless landscape. She ran the last hundred metres, limping and panting, the sweat chilling her skin. The station was situated at the mouth of a small ravine, and even from a distance she could see that the instruments had been knocked over. As she got closer, she saw the tracks, looping and circling around the scattered equipment. For a moment she just stood there, trembling in the harsh wind, staring at the destruction. Then she kneeled down and started brushing sand off the instruments, but there was nothing left to salvage. Pieces of smashed plastic and fragments of twisted metal were strewn everywhere. The electronic innards pulled out and shredded. As best she could, she gathered up the pieces and put them in a small pile next to the cliff, then used her hands to smooth over the tracks. When she had done all she could, she crawled further in between the walls of the ravine, scrambling in on all fours as far as she could until the gorge became so narrow that the rock walls touched her on either side. Between the cliffs, she was protected from the wind, but she could still hear it moan and wail through innumerable holes and crevices. Even though the wind couldn't touch her, the noise of it ripped through her, piercing her, shaking her thoughts and bones and flesh, and she wrapped her arms tightly around her body to hold it together. The wind howled even louder, its howls sometimes resembling high-pitched cries and voices, frayed and difficult to understand. Now and then she thought she could make out certain words, and after a while she could even recognise the voices. It was their voices, their words, speaking to her out of the cliffs and the sand. They shouldn't be able to talk to her any more, and yet she could hear them. Nothing but the wind, she thought, banging her head against the rocks. That's all it is. It's nothing else, just the wind, making ripples in the sand. The tracks had been there the very first morning, the very first time she had headed out to check on the hull after the crash. She'd covered them up immediately, but he had seen her. He had been watching. When she came back inside, he was sitting up in bed, leaning on one elbow, facing the window. She'd been so certain that he would sleep longer than that. It's just the wind, she explained, before he had a chance to say anything. He just shook his head. I saw it, he said without looking at her, during the night. It was there outside the window. It was watching me. And then he lay down, facing the wall. We should never have landed here. The probe would have given us info about it. Whatever it is. She had tried to be understanding. After all, he had suffered from shock and confusion and amnesia after the crash. That made it difficult for him to remember what had really happened during the last few days on board. She had explained it all to him again, that the probe had been sent out and that the readings hadn't shown anything out of the ordinary. Then she had asked if he remembered the accident. We had no choice, she told him, holding his hand to comfort him. 
the guidance system was broken and we were forced to evacuate to the emergency capsule. It's too risky to land without probe info, he had said stubbornly, as if he hadn't heard a word, and he still refused to look at her. It was an emergency landing, she said, speaking slowly and clearly so he would understand. We had no choice. But it was as though he couldn't remember that. Where are the others? he'd asked, and she nodded towards the two bodies covered with blankets next to the exit. They died. The entry was rough. Don't you remember? Don't you remember that the probe didn't show anything unusual, and that the systems malfunctioned and we had to get out of there? He had just looked at her then, eyes glazed, a trickle of dried blood in the corner of his mouth. Still, she tried to be patient. He was suffering from hallucinations, nightmares, just like she was. It was watching me, he told her again. It was standing out there, looking right at me. Even with the insulation, the capsule must give off some heat. Maybe that's what lures them. It must be so cold out there at night. There'd be nothing more to say after that. She'd given him his pills, then he went quiet and fell asleep. The next day, she moved them. His eyes were still shut when she dragged him across the sand, and finally put him to rest on the other side of the ridge with the others. She had put the memory clip with the ship's log on his chest, placing his hands on top of it. It just seemed like he ought to have something with him. She didn't know for certain whether he'd made entries in the log since the crash, but he could have done it while she was asleep, and there seemed to be no way to crack his encryption. The bodies had looked so lonely laying there on the ground. She put the first two face down so they wouldn't be able to see her, but his eyes were closed, so she'd left him on his back. There was nothing to see anyway. Not now. Not any more. Nothing to see, she thought, as the cold, rough surface of the cliff scraped her forehead. The UV shield was cracked. She pulled off her gloves, removed the shield, and threw it away, then rubbed her eyes to get rid of the sand. But now the tears came, stinging her nostrils, spreading their salty taste in the back of her mouth. The wind grabbed hold of her when she stood up to leave. It shoved her in the back, almost toppling her while the cliffs kept howling behind her, calling out tattered words she couldn't escape and didn't want to understand. She tried to get away, didn't want to listen, but the sand was soft and deep and her boots sank into it. It was like treading water. In the end, you always sink no matter how you fight. You pull down and under until you can't breathe. The pills were wearing off and the pain in her foot had returned. But she couldn't stay here. She had to get back. So she went on, every step another stab of pain. When she dared to turn round, the cliffs were gone. The storm was blowing harder now, whipping up swirls and clouds of dust that filled the air and sky, making the landscape look exactly the same in all directions. She could feel the world turning, tumbling and spinning around her until she had no idea where she'd come from or where she was going. Standing there, assaulted by the wind, she hesitated, squinting up at the sun until her unprotected eyes burned, vainly trying to remember the position it had been in before. It seemed to her that there were other shapes surrounding her in the storm, but she couldn't see clearly, and they always seemed to stay right on the edges of her veiled vision, flitting in and out, uncertain, unseen. They flickered in the wind and the light, then disappeared completely when she turned to face them. Shadows, sand, wind. Maybe it's a search party, she thought, sent out to find me. Maybe they just landed and found the empty capsule. 
She shouldn't have thrown away the UV shield. It was so difficult to see in the shimmering sand and sunlight. She screamed, but the sound of her own voice being devoured by the wind was so strange she immediately fell silent again. After a while, the shapes around her disappeared, and the air seemed to clear. She was alone. She started moving again, more slowly than before, dragging her left foot. Fatigue overcame her then. It entered her mind and her body like a familiar, almost welcome warmth in the chest, spreading slowly into her arms and legs. It was like it had been when she had dragged the others across the ridge. The fatigue had been like an inviting, seductive heaviness, making it difficult to move, and even more difficult to think. Soon, she thought, and struggled on. They'll be here soon. Maybe they're already here. When she finally reached the capsule, she collapsed inside as the airlock closed and lay there for a while, with her flushed, wind-burned face resting on the floor, listening to the wind howling through the holes and cracks inside her, just as it had howled through the cliffs. There was nobody there. Nobody had come for her. She took two pills before sitting down at the work desk. It was difficult to get the boot off because of the swelling, and the searing reddish-blue bruise had spread halfway up her calf and shin. Carefully she wrapped her ankle with a cooling bandage and felt the throbbing subside. She pulled up the diagrams and the graphs on screen, all the data she'd previously collected from the test sites, and she sat there, staring at the screen, trying to make sense of it all. It was so difficult to concentrate, so difficult to see, as if the sparkling sand and sunlight were still in her eyes. The report was incomplete, but maybe it would still be enough for a terraforming licence. It would have looked better with the info from the probe, but it was too late to do anything about that. I can't do it all by myself, she thought angrily. They'll understand that. They have to understand that. She felt her lacerated forehead and saw blood on her fingers. The damn probe. If they'd just listened to her, it would have been so much easier. Well, she'd done the best she could under the circumstances. She'd done what had to be done. It had been roughly six months into the trip, barely halfway through their mission. When she'd accepted the position with the research team, she thought that analysing and classifying the planets in the sector they had been assigned would challenge her terraforming knowledge. After only a month on board, she'd realised it was going to be very different than she'd imagined. The work was monotonous and repetitive, and mostly consisted of evaluating long-distance sensor info, not analysing environments on site like she wanted to do. The others always found something that ruled out surface expeditions, and soon every new planet just became another source of disappointment. Scanning the first long-distance data for this planet, she'd immediately realised that it was ideal, near-perfect for terraforming, and she had wanted to get down there immediately. It was true they had lost contact with the first probe, but that was just a technical mishap, and the others ought to have given in when she reported the impressive info from the second probe. Instead, they'd requested access to the raw data feed. She'd refused, because it was unnecessary, but the others remained obsessed with seeing that raw feed. In spite of her expertise... In spite of the well-written reports and the excellent stats she provided, they did not want to listen to her. She ate, even though she wasn't hungry. The whole time she could hear the wind outside, the sand hissing as it drifted over the dunes and rocks. She could feel it on her face, hear its mournful whine through the crevices and crannies of the cliffs. Voices. Their voices. She shook her head when she heard what they were saying. No! she said. No, it wasn't like that. But that didn't silence them. 
She didn't go to bed when darkness fell. It was impossible to see the sunset from inside the capsule, but you could see the sky shift from dark blue to black. And then the night sky was split in half by the galaxy's wide spiral arm, its brilliant white starlight casting shadows on the ground. She turned off all the lights until just the screen on the desk remained lit behind her. A cold, pale light, fueled by statistics, data, numbers, plans. More distant than starlight. It was very cold out there at night. Ice and frozen sand. Frost and cold fingers, curled as though they were still trying to grab hold of something. Other hands stretched out as if to protect, or fend off. The wind was picking up. She heard the sand scraping against the windows in the hull, and she covered her face with her hands so that it wouldn't get into her eyes. If it drifts up against the door, she thought, and the wind was screaming in her ears now, could not be shut out. If it drifts over the top and buries me... The screams and voices rushed at her, the words clearer now, more distinct. But she shook her head, because they didn't know. They didn't see. They couldn't know. They couldn't see. How long now? She looked at the useless watch that kept flashing the same numbers. The same moment, again and again and again. They would find her. It was just a question of time. When they finally did come, she didn't dare to move at first. Hardly dared to breathe so as not to scare them. But they seemed completely unafraid. I knew they'd come, she thought, leaning closer to see better. Just the glass separating her from them now. She raised her hand in greeting, placing it on the window, fingers spread. After a while, they disappeared from sight, and she stood up. The thermal suit was hanging in the closet, but she didn't need it. They finally came. I knew they would. I knew they'd come for me. The door closed behind her as the outer hatch opened. She ventured into the darkness, into the cold, where they were waiting for her. The capsule was almost completely buried when they reached it and he thought to himself that it resembled a rock or a cliff formation, a part of the planet itself. Get going, he said, pulling irritably at his tight silver collar adorned with the black leadership pin. It looks like we'll have to dig our way in. The wind pulled at his hood, and sand lashed at his face when he turned around, squinting up at the ridge further away. A noise. Distant. He tried to catch it again, but it was difficult to hear with the hood pulled up over his head. It took less than ten minutes for the team to dig their way down to the outer hatch. When they were done, they stood silent for a moment, leaning on their shovels. In their black outfits, with silver click seams, they resembled nothing so much as a gathering of mourners. The Corpse Patrol, he thought, brushing the sand off his shoulders. A well-deserved nickname, perhaps, but they could at least have given us suits that look a little more cheerful. Perhaps their comm system has been damaged he said, in a loud voice, to make himself heard over the wind. We can't know for sure. They may still be alive. When he closed his mouth, grains of sand cracked between his teeth. The hatch opened, and they looked at each other, but didn't need to speak. They'd done all this before. When they stepped inside, they prepared themselves for the smell and sight of death. Light, he said, and the capsule was illuminated. Empty. The tension eased slightly around his shoulders and neck. Most of the interior seemed intact. Only one computer unit appeared to be damaged, its interface panel black and cracked, but the screen on the work desk seemed active. In a corner they found blood-stained clothing and empty packs of painkillers. 
Somebody's been working here. After the crash, one of his crew said after checking the work desk. Working on what? Well, it looks like observation stats. They must have set up a couple of stations, judging by this. But nothing from the probe, as far as I can tell. Neither the first nor the second one. Not surprising, considering that we haven't found any traces of them either. Not even a positioning blip. Crew of four, right? Two men, two women, the usual. One terraformer, couple of engineers, a ship specialist. Somebody must have been injured. Almost half the pain pills have gone from the medical supply. Okay, he said. Search party. You three. One K radius to start. Maybe they've collapsed close by. Look for tracks. With this wind, it'll be difficult to find any kind of tracks. Anything older than a few hours, maybe even less, will be gone. I know, but look anyway. If they've spent the night outside, they must be dead by now. It's pure desert and tundra out there. When the others had left, he haphazardly went through the furnishings, the bedding, and the toolboxes. I don't think they'd been here for quite a while," said his second in command, who was still going through the work desk entries. "The last info is a few weeks old already. Before that, it seems to have been used almost daily. So where are they?" the leader asked testily. The life support systems are intact, and as far as I can tell, the hull is intact as well. The rest of it is no worse than that they should have been able to fix it in a couple of days. The food and water supplies have hardly been touched. Solar panels are working. Why aren't they here? Try to find the ship's log. It must be here somewhere. Maybe they've snapped. Wouldn't be the first time that happened. You and I have been on enough expeditions to know that. Psych problems in these teams are rampant, even worse than our own. He was standing by the window. Peering out into the sunlight, nothing but sand and wind out there. He thought, sand, and wind. Finally, he said, "Out there, when we approached, did you hear something? Hear something? Like what?" In the light, he could make out a palm print on the window. I don't know," he said. "A kind of yell or a howl. Human, perhaps." I didn't hear anything. Could have just been the wind. This place is not too inviting, blustery to say the least.、And、that sand gets everywhere. It's as cold as a deep freeze at night. No worse than many other places they've terraformed. We found them. The sudden sound from the comlink in his ear gave him a start, even though he'd been expecting it. He adjusted the volume behind his earlobe. It was always set too loud. What shape are they in? He asked. Dead. Been dead quite a while. Since the crash is my guess, frozen solid by now, but there are only three of them here. One of the women is missing. Cause of death: two of them have skull fractures and some serious lacerations. Death was probably caused by a sharp object to the head. Almost identical injuries on both. Could have happened during the emergency landing, I guess. I don't want to speculate. The third has some broken bones and signs of internal injuries. We found the ship's log, but it's useless. Looks like somebody tried to erase it. Not a professional job, but there are only bits and pieces left. Erased it, and no sign of the fourth. Nothing so far. To hell with it, he thought, and held up his hand to shield his eyes from the light. To hell with all of it. When they left four days later, he was standing by the round observation window in the gathering hall, watching as the planet's illuminated crescent disappeared beneath them. The three bodies were resting in the cargo hold, sealed in shiny metal containers. Seems perfect for terraforming," his second in command remarked. "But without complete stats, they can't begin, and they don't know when the next science team can be sent out here. They're pretty busy elsewhere. 
Bathalist did a derisive snort. <laughs> busy. Right. If they'd started terraforming now, it could be ready for colonisation within the next decade. Instead, we have to wait for another expedition before the process can begin. Sending out another ship could take several years, considering how slowly search and science works. The regulations are there for a reason. But following them is occasionally a waste of time. We both know that. As if we have all the time in the world. As if we can afford to be picky. You know my opinion. These manned expeditions are a waste of resources. A couple of robot teams could make evaluations on flyby. Maybe not all that precise, but good enough. We don't have to be so thorough. He said nothing. Just blew on the hot cup of tea he had just poured, watching the steam fog up the window. They're running an analysis on the remains of the ship in the tech lab right now, the second-in-command continued. But with the crumbs they have to work with, it'll be difficult to determine what really took place. What do you think happened to her? said the leader. Anything could have happened to her, the other man replied. Most likely an accident on the way to one of those useless monitoring stations she set up. But nobody? The other man shrugged. Nobody. Maybe she overdosed on pain pills like the ship specialist. Maybe she committed suicide out there in the sand somewhere. We'd never find her. And the probes? Two of them gone and no trace? And the monitoring stations? Every instrument smashed? She must have done it before she killed herself. Or got herself lost. Psychosis. How many times have we seen that before? A couple of months down there all alone would drive anybody crazy. It was a stupid idea to set up those stations, but I guess it gave us something to do anyway. The stars were dense here in the inner spiral arms of the galaxy, and they stood silent side by side, looking at scraps of white starlight while the ship kept going. Cold, he thought. It must have been so very cold. Long shift for those teams, his second-in-command mused. Enormous psychological pressure. Don't envy them. Hey, you listening? He felt the man tug at his sleeve and turned. But instead of the other man's face, he saw the ridge and its shadow, and the shimmering ice crystals that had shattered beneath the soles of his boots when they'd gone down into the hollow to pack up the bodies. If it wasn't so cold. He closed his eyes so the sand would not get into his eyes. The wind, he said finally. Almost like voices sometimes, even though you can't understand what they're saying. What are you talking about? But he turned away, staring out the window again. I wonder what she saw, he thought, placing his palm on the window, fingers sprawled on the glass as if in greeting. But all he could feel was the cold outside. <laughs> Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There you go, Maria. Thank you so much for that. Lovely. Try and get you back on as well. That'd be fantastic. And Andrea, like I said before there, fantastic, man. Go on there. Excellent narration. Thank you so much. So yes, we have finished the Kickstarter. It's all over. And it feels like a bit of a, kind of strange. Honestly, because I was kind of milking that old uh, baby there, getting it for that full month and checking this, checking that, putting out tweets, messages, everything like that. And just stopped and it's quite a, a weird thing. I know we've got the kind of the work to do there now. So hopefully that'll kind of, you know, ramp it up a little bit and keep us occupied. But it's strange not having it, at, you know, there. And... I wanted to kind of have a chat, you know, I mentioned doing an interview with Alex. I just want to have a chat, you know, to see how his side of it is is doing, you know, because Alex, we did our campaign slightly different. You know, Alex has kind of set his goal at a certain amount, which is like way more than mine, you know, and, and slowly, hopefully he'll, he will get there. Mine was lower down. Well, for me, it was still kind of a lot of money, you know, we just kind of storm past that, you know, my kind of kind of level, which was amazing, do you know what I mean? And so it's kind of reinvigorated me to kind of do other projects like this as well, you know what I mean? We've still got that idea of maybe doing a horror one next year as well. So, But anyways, get into this interview with Alex. Alex, lovely to have you on Starship Sofa, sir. Thank you very much. Very glad to be back. Now, Alex, I know you from, you know, a great writer. We've had you on the show there a couple of times, and I've even reached out quite a number of times to, for your guidance and help with contracts. And I didn't, I never put the two and two together because I've heard about these books, un, Unidentified Funny Objects, and I never put the two and two together that this is another side of you as well. You're the, the, the editor of these. Uh, yeah, that's right. I, I sort of stumbled my way into editing anthologies, which is something I never expected myself to do uh, as recently as six or seven years ago. Uh, but I um, I was a, a bit frustrated with uh, the business side of uh, of publishing and how how slow everything was taking, how little everybody was getting paid. And uh, with some business background that I have, I thought I could do better. And so... Uh, having a huge ego like that, deciding that I can actually do better than uh, the, the, than all these people have been doing it for a long time, I decided that I should give it a, ch- a chance sometime. And then this idea came to me. Um, so I, I, I tend to write a lot of humorous fiction, uh, but there's just never enough markets uh, willing to buy that kind of work. Uh, a magazine might occasionally publish a single humorous story, but short of uh, themed anthologies that are that are few and far between, 
there really aren't markets that are exclusively for, for humorous and lighthearted uh, science fiction and fantasy. And so I, I thought, wouldn't it be a good idea to do an anthology like that? You know, I, I'm, I'm not going to be able to put my work into it, but I'm sure other people uh, are looking for places to submit. And as a reader, that's something that I would want to check out. So uh, with ha- having no experience whatsoever at the time uh, and have, having never edited anything, never been a slush reader anywhere, I just decided I was going to do it anyway. And uh, I learned a lot of stuff. Uh, you know, I spent a lot of time working on it and thankfully it all worked out. Uh, the book is, you know, the, the very first unidentified funny object anthology is five years old and it's still selling well. It's still, uh, you know, getting read by a lot of people. It's still getting, you know, reviews and many of them positive. So uh, I was very, very happy with that. Uh, so much so that I've continued the series and we're now, um, we've now entered our sixth year. So is, I mean, it must be, you know, from, from a kind of writer's point of view, it must be a strange one to add humor in. You know, there mustn't be, I would have thought, that many humor writers that all can pull it off to a degree where the standard you're after. Well, injecting humor into fiction is uh, a technique that's almost as old as fiction, right? If you watch a, a movie, you know, if you watch a movie like Star Wars, uh, there's going to be humorous moments in it. If you uh, if you read a novel, there's going to be some humorous moments in it. There's going to be some conversation. There's going to be uh, you know some moments because you you know you can't really just have nothing but dread and and thrills and sort of uh, uh, excitement without uh, without some kind of an outlet. So humor has always been a part of fiction. Uh, however, you're right. There is not nearly as many stories that are outright humor. And uh, I don't necessarily hold the stories for the series up to that criteria. I think they need to be somewhat funny. I'm not expecting that every single story is going to be gut-bustingly hilarious. And in fact, even if it was to me, it wouldn't be to all the readers because everybody's sense of humor is different. So what I try to do is I try to find stories that are lighthearted, that are at least somewhat humorous, that make people smile. uh, And I try to find a variety of them that, that, that are different from each other. So... Whoever picks up the book, uh, they will find a few that they'll really enjoy, even if it's not going to be every single story. So I've, I'm looking on your page there, Alex, as well. Am I right in thinking that you've already got some writers, but you're going to you're, you're actually opening the doors to, to bring in new writers as well, new stories? Absolutely. So uh, the process has been the same every year for us. I start out uh, actually uh, in October or December of previous year by reaching out to several headliners. Uh, so headliners, you know, authors whose names are big and famous enough to put on the cover, um, they're generally busy and they need uh, more lead time in order to actually deliver a story if they can at all. So I reach out to a few headliners, people whose names, again, will, will you know, will get everybody excited and will get everybody's ears perked up. Uh, and I fill about half the book with stories like that. Uh, however, I'm also committed to, to filling... The other half with stories that come through the open submission process because uh, we need to make sure that the newer writers are able to participate in these kind of projects. And there's entirely too many anthologies that are filled uh, by invitation only. And, of course, it's a lot less work for the editor to do it that way. But uh, you don't discover new talent and you don't get to to find amazing new authors to feature alongside the headliners uh, if you limit yourself to people you already know. So, Alex, now you don't have to answer this question. Have you ever reached out to one of the big, the big guns and have, and have sent you a story and you thought, oh, it's not funny? I, 
<laughs> I, I'm going to say this. I have rejected New York Times bestselling author stories several times. Right, right. Oh, hey. It happens. It happens. And you know what? Uh, most people are super professional about it, and they understand that sometimes it's just a matter of fit. Uh, and 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 that's okay. I mean, we all any, any of us who are who are working writers, uh, we get rejection slips. I mean, you know, even no, novelists, uh, award winners, everybody. So, do you mind just telling me then, giving me a little bit of sneak peek? Who's in it? Who can you tell with that's in it now? On in this one, number six. Okay, so so far, and of course, uh, there are more stories in more stories in the queue. Um, so far, we've got. Uh, a fantasy story by Jack Campbell, who is, of course, known for his space opera, but uh, he took a break from that to uh, to write a very funny fantasy story for us. Um, we got a Helm story, which is a, a Yiddish humor uh, staple uh, from Esther Friesner. Uh, we've got an epistolary short story by Ken Liu. Uh, we, you know, and we have several other stories in the queue. We have a, a, a Game of Thrones parody by Jim Hines. Uh, and then there are also stories that are forthcoming from Jodie Lynn Nye. Uh, we have a story from Jeannie Koch, which she actually already sent me, but I just haven't had a chance to read it yet. So I'll do that soon. Um, uh, we, we, uh, Laura Resnick uh, is writing a story for us. Uh, Mike Resnick sent in a story already, and that's another one of his urban fantasy funny stories uh, featuring Harry the Book character. Uh, you know, so those are just a few of some of the headliners that uh, that have been invited. And, of course, every year we invite a number of headliners understanding that not everybody is going to be delivered, is going to be have, have time to deliver that year. So um, I don't want to, you know, put anybody on the spot. There are other headlining authors who have been invited, and I will mention them even when they deliver a story, because if they don't, I don't want it to, to make it seem like, like we're putting additional pressure on them because we, we would rather just have them back next year. Mm-hmm. That's a good thing, I suppose, in, in with this, you know, your series there. You can always, if someone is delivering a bit late, you know, just keep keep a hold of it till next time. Right. Uh, and there, are, there are authors who I've been inviting for years and years, and they just don't have the time. And every once in a while, it'll be like, after four years, I finally get a story from them. <laughs> uh, as a matter of fact, Jack Campbell is somebody who I've been inviting for about four years now. And and, and he's been talking about how he's going to write a fantasy story that, that's funny. And he's been kind of... Uh, uh, volunteered to do it at one point and just didn't have the time and then eventually he finally did it and now we have a story from him and uh, i'm very pleased with it so you launch your kickstarter let's let's get down to the logistics then alex because you it's a brave man or woman or you know I mean you set your pledge goal at ten thousand. so make a break if it doesn't if it doesn't hit that ten thousand, this kickstarter doesn't work well, that's right. Uh, one of the great features of Kickstarter is, uh, and I actually like it quite a lot, is that it's all or nothing because it really uh, kind of gives everybody a call to arms, so to speak. You know, everybody who is who's interested in this thing succeeding, there's additional incentive for them to go out there and to help us promote the project, to talk about it, to get their friends on board because if we don't reach that goal, then it doesn't happen for everyone. You know, the, they don't get their rewards. They don't, you know, we, we, you know, we don't get to produce the book that's nearly as good uh, because uh, straight out, we will, the book will happen. Even if the Kickstarter somehow fails, the book is still going to happen. It's just going to be a thinner volume. I'm going to be able to buy less stories. I'm going to be able to uh, afford to illustrate less stories because we actually illustrate quite a few stories in the book, which is something that's uh, a bit of a lost art for uh, for anthologies. Uh, most publishers just don't want to spend the money on that. 
Um, another thing that we do with the funds is we advertise. So, you know, we've advertised previously with places like Clark's World and Daily Science Fiction and other venues. Uh, so, you know, so that so we can actually spread some of that money around as well. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a little scary to uh, to set a lofty goal like that. But I am committed to paying everybody who is involved with this project a fair wage. And that not not only the writers, which is, of course, the you know, the, the, the common thing to do, like you know, for, for the better publishers, they all pay professional rates to the writers. Uh, we're paying 10 cents a word, which is one of the highest in, uh, you know, in, in, in the field right now. Uh, but I'm also committed to paying our cover artists, our copy editors, uh, our layout designers, everybody who is involved. Uh, you know, I expect them to do a professional quality work and I want to pay, pay them a professional wage for it. The only person who has not gotten paid for any of these volumes, who has not taken a single red cent from, from the project, is me. I'm, I'm not taking any money into my pocket. When we make extra money from these anthologies, what I end up doing is raising those pay rates. We started at five cents a word five years ago, and we're now up to 10 cents a word for the authors. And there's been similar increases um, you know, elsewhere. So, and the plus, we've been able to do more promotion and, uh, and just generally grow the, uh, the anthology series. Maybe someday I'll actually, you know, end up making a few hundred dollars on it. But so far, uh, I, the, the work that I've put in over the last five years have been pro bono. What, why is that then? Because surely you've got to live, Alex. And, and I, I guess 100% of the people that are listening here now would say you deserve it. Do you know what I mean? You're kind of, you're, you're doing this. And it's not just like a one-off, you know, 30 days and then we'll get the novel. This is going on for six years, seven years you've been doing it. Why are you refusing to, to give yourself anything? Well, if I do, uh, it'll take away from, from growing the series and from doing all the cool things that we can do with it. Now, I'm very fortunate in that I, you know, I do very well. I have a business. Uh, I have other, you know, business interests. I, you know, I earn a, a, a very decent living. So I don't need to pay myself for this. You know, I, I, I'm doing it because I really enjoy it and it's a hobby. And, you know, some people spend, you know, $10,000 a year going to ski. Um, I happen to break even, you know, and, and just spend a lot of my time editing anthologies. Uh, again, I, I advocate fully that people who work in this field should be paid. And I think this is the only scenario where it's okay for somebody not to get paid is if they're the person in charge. And if they choose to uh, invest their effort and time to do this, and I think it's not just me, by the way. Uh, most of the most of the magazines in this field, most of the um, you know m most of the small publishing houses, they're either not getting paid or they're getting paid very very little compared to the amount of work that they're putting in. It, for everybody, it's a labor of love. Just, you know, not even mentioning people who run conventions; those people don't get paid either. You know, you've got your your, your ten thousand goal there. Has it ever been close where you're thinking, "Just not going to do it this time. It's not going to do it." Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, it's been close one too many times. And I feel like I feel like every time I do this, I kind of pay with a, with a few months coming off my life there. Uh, but at the same time, there is that uh, immense uh, feeling of gratitude and relief and, and sort of uh, appreciation for, for everybody involved when we do fund. And it really uh, keeps me going because it shows me that there are hundreds of people uh, that are willing to to put good money where where you know uh, you know into this project and all because they want to see it happen all because they want to see, you know they, they could just wait they could just wait and buy the book uh, you know six months from now seven months from now they don't have to put up their money now but they're willing to do it because 
you know, there is a need for this project. So many of the anthologies and, and magazine issues now are all about doom and gloom and they're trending very literary, which in itself is not a problem at all. I think there's certainly room for that. Uh, but there are not as many projects and you know where, where science fiction is just really fun. And, th- and that's what I want to you know, create. That's what, that's what I want to bring into the world. I'll tell you what I like as well, Alex. And like you say, you've, you've had six, seven years kind of practice at this. You've got a lot of strategies. You know, it's, it's almost like, you know, fishing for fishing. There's different kind of goals to get. We, early, you've got early bird, like little treats. If you, if you pledge early, you've got certain little treats along the way. Have you found out a system that works for you? Well, it's 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 a it's a moving beast, and every year it's a little different. Kickstarter changes. Uh, the fashions are what's popular on Kickstarter changes. As a matter of fact, the early bird thing that, that was the first year that we did it, uh, and it seems to have done well. Uh, ultimately, though, uh, these are all windows dressing, and these are all things that maybe will add an extra ten percent to the funding that you're going to raise. The most important thing, and I and I do a lot of consulting for Kickstarter and other crowdfunding projects, uh, both in fiction and in my day job, which you know, which involves gaming. Um, so what I always tell people is the most important thing is a unique idea, and then how you present it to the world. If you look like you're uh, somebody who's a serious person and who can make this project go forward, and you create something that people read the the campaign and go. Yeah, I want I want that thing to exist. I want to help bring that into the world. That's what's going to make you successful. I mean, if you just you know come out with another uh, you know with another uh, project that's very very similar to what everybody else is doing, uh, you'll have a much harder time of it. I noticed as well, Alex. You've got you know you got your funny objects here, but as well you also do. What's the difference then from the funny? You've got a, a, a one called funny science fiction and funny fantasy. Were they early? Carnations of of this this book? Uh, no, they're actually a more recent anthologies. So what I've done with unidentified funny objects is uh, the first few volumes each include one or two reprint stories, and those are usually from huge names. They're people like Robert Silverberg and George R. R. Martin and Neil Gaiman, um, and those are the stories that you know we put those people's names on the cover, and they attract the additional attention to try to get uh, readership for the book and for all the other authors involved. Um, over the last few years, though, the series has really uh, gained enough popularity and enough respect where I can get headliner stories that are originals. Uh, and so we've been 100% original content uh, now for a few years. So what I've done instead is there's a lot of stories out there uh, that I read and I go like, man, I really wish that I saw that story first so I could have published it, right? Uh, and so over the last uh, two and a half years, I did these other three anthologies, funny science fiction, funny fantasy, and funny horror, uh, collecting those kind of stories. They're the stories that I would have bought and published in UFO had I seen them first. Uh, so these are all reprints. They're all reprints. Uh, you know, so there's stuff. Some of them are from places like the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. So they've gotten a lot of exposure. But some of them are from places that are really obscure, like small magazines, uh, small anthologies. And so I'm putting them together uh, to, again, uh, kind of collect the sort of work that goes into the UFO series, but, 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 but it doesn't fit into, uh, in, into the primary anthologies because it's been published elsewhere first. So what's, I guess, what's the next, the next year? Are you going to do a seven next year? Is it just going to carry on like that? Or have you got any like, little ideas 
you know, in your back pocket, so to, so to speak? My goal is to continue the series for as long as I can, as long as I can, uh, you know, financially and, and as far, in terms of time commitment, I'm able to uh, to be involved uh, and health. Of course, uh, you know, uh, if I can keep going, if I can keep going, I'll keep going. So as long as there's readers and uh, we can demonstrate both through Kickstarter and through ebook sales and, and, and physical book sales that there's enough people out there that are enjoying the series and, the, and, and there's demand. Uh, I don't really plan on stopping. Uh, I've also been working on anthologies for other publishers. I just uh, um, um, I just turned in an anthology that I did for Bain Books called The Cackle of Cthulhu, and it's uh, uh, an anthology of Lovecraftian humor. Um, uh, last year, I published Humanity 2.0, which is not a humor anthology. Uh, it's actually a hard, a hard sci-fi anthology um, with Arc Matter Phoenix Peak. Uh, and there's a couple of other anthology projects in the works. So I'm actually uh, working on anthology projects for other publishers now. So I'm probably going to slow down a little bit uh, doing my own anthology simply because there's not enough time. Uh, but I'm going to continue to do them for other publishers and I will continue to do the primary, you know, the flagship project, you know, the UFO series every year. Again, uh, as long as I'm able to do it with enough uh, you know, support and backing from, from, from other people. And even if for some reason um, I'm my time is not there anymore, there are some contingency plans where I can invite other editors to guest edit an issue of it potentially. So uh, so I'm hoping I'm hoping it's going to be a, a long-term thing where, you know, it's still there 10 years from now. And will it always be Kickstarter for you for doing your own things? Um, well... Not always. I haven't done a Kickstarter for the funny series because they're a little bit uh, less expensive to do. Um, and, of course, uh, the the UFO series itself keeps uh, picking up steam. Uh, the thing that I really like about the Kickstarter thing is, though, uh, not only does it, you know, does it provide the funds to publish the books, uh, but it's also a great promotional model. There's a lot of people that if I just publish the book and just put it out on Amazon – a lot of the people that are used to getting it on Kickstarter may not notice. I mean, everybody's busy and they're not necessarily going, oh, let me program into the calendar when the next Alex Schwartzman anthology is coming out. So um, I I like to continue to working with them. I also really enjoy working with people at Kickstarter, at the company. Uh, I mean, they're really wonderful and I've had a lot of interaction with them and just, you know, they're, they're just great to work with. So I would like to keep it going. What I might eventually do is either make the project even more ambitious and, you know, pay more money, get bigger headliners, things like that, or uh, start gradually lowering the funding goal because, uh, you know, as, 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 the th- as the series becomes more self-sustaining. Alex, it's been a little insight into to this the kind of tightrope we've both been walking. Do you know what I mean? I kind of, I'm watching yours now, and yours just seems to be like a rocket out of the you know out of the, out of the starting gun. So good luck with it. You know, thank you for coming on Starship Sofa. Thanks very much for having me on. It's, it's always a pleasure. I, I love your podcast. I'll put a link on to Alex's kick fund there. There's still plenty of time. Pop over there. And like you say, science fiction and funny and fantasy and funny. That is a that is a neat little niche there. So please pop over there and support Alex Schwarzman. He has been a tremendous help with Starship Sova, you know, and the District of Wonders. So for that reason alone, it would be nice just to get an ebook. Do you know what I mean? Support him. 
So that is today's show. Like I say, the first week in this kind of translation special month of three weeks. Next week, you know, do join us again for another story. We've been, you know, it was written in native language and then translated into English. That would be fantastic. Until then, just like to say, good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. I don't get out much. I've barely left the ground. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm moving, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. Pointing them to the moon But the work is going slowly It won't get to you anytime soon Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you This signal's going light speed By the time I get my say I might already be on to you and on my way But you're so far from here And at best I'm moving slow So I'm waiting on your call at home with nowhere to go Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you I want to talk to you Myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there, out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there, out there by and by.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.